are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 tonight as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, seeking to take a chapter at a time here. Uh, a, a night like tonight, there does seem to be quite a bit to try to fit in one sermon, but uh, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, please follow along as I read it in its entirety. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me pray for us as we begin our time of God's word. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here tonight. God, that you would speak to us your truth through your word. Lord, I pray that we would see the hopelessness in the things of this world and that we would see the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, you have brought all of us here together by your plan, by your sovereign plan. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts tonight for your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, a question I grew up hearing a lot, and maybe you uh, also hear this a lot, or maybe you ask this yourself. I heard the question, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and most of the time, I had a different answer to that question, what do I want to be when I grow up? Some of you guys already know this, those who have been around for a while. That the, the earliest memory, I was probably maybe three or four at the oldest, the earliest memory I have of the first thing I ever said I want to be when I grew up was a dancer. I still hold that to this day. I still would love to be a dancer. Uh, but that, that didn't pan out. Uh, and then I remember shortly after that, 
maybe I was six or seven, I decided, no, I'm not going to be a dancer. I want to be a sumo wrestler. <laughs> Where's Robbie? <laughs> right? Yes? I, I had this fantasy, I don't know why, of like trying to travel to my sumo matches and like trying to fit on the airplane and I wouldn't fit through the door and they're like, the students like trying to like shovel me in with their shoulders and I couldn't fit, I was so fat. Um, that, didn't, that didn't work out. Um, then later, uh, I wanted to be a firefighter. I found out I passed out inside the blood, so that didn't work out. Uh, and then I thought I wanted to be on SWAT. Um, yeah, right? Uh, where, where's the, the serial kill, right? SWAT, PH SWAT. Uh, that didn't work out for me either. I wanted to be a suit salesman. Uh, I just would love to sell people suits, make, make them look good in a suit. Uh, I wanted to go into marketing, all these kinds of things. It just never ended. Uh, I never thought I, I'd be in ministry, uh, not until probably my, my college days. Uh, but maybe you can relate. Maybe it's like every week, like, oh, I want to do this, I want to be this. When I grow up, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. Uh, I don't think it's uncommon uh, for kids to grow up wanting to be different things, always changing their minds. That they look here they, and, and they look there, they're seeking to find what it is they want to be when they grow up. Well, like a kid who's, who's always searching for, for the right fit, who's always looking at something new and different, who always has a different answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Solomon here is still searching for the answer in his quest for meaningfulness, for fulfillment, for satisfaction. And he keeps looking here or there, here or there, maybe this, maybe that. Will he find meaningfulness and, and fulfillment and satisfaction here? No. Well, what about here? Maybe he'll find it in this area of life. Nope. Maybe here. And nope. And he keeps getting shut down. And in this quest, we now see Solomon seeking to find meaning and hope in the institutions of this world, and specifically in government and in work. And really, it's actually not so much that we see his pursuit as it is that we see his conclusion that our hope must not rest in government and our hope must not rest in our work. And in doing this, he's going to show problems with each. The problems that are found in both government and in work and why we cannot find our hope in these institutions. And not only will we see the hopelessness in both government and work, but we also see where we can find hope. And he will show us what is better than these things. All right, so that's where we're going tonight. I know as I read it, maybe you're like, wow, there's a lot going on here. That's how we're seeking to categorize and organize it this evening okay so first we look at the hopelessness found in government and really i'm taking the first three verses and then verses 13 through 16 kind of bookending it here and i'm categorizing it as government so two subpoints for this all of these subpoints are going to be problems the first problem we see is the problem with neglect in verses one through three the problem with neglect Now, he's speaking here of those who have been oppressed, right? He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Those who've been oppressed. He sees their oppression. He sees that they've been mistreated. He sees their tears. And yet he sees they receive no comfort. Their oppression, their pain, their tears have been neglected. And he sees that those in power, 
Those who have the ability to make a difference and help the oppressed are not helping. If anything, they are the ones doing the oppressing. Those with power who should be using their power for good and to help the powerless are using their power to crush the small and the weak. And so the oppressed continue to be oppressed and they continue to be neglected. And he comes to the conclusion that it's better to not even be alive than to be alive and be oppressed or even witness the oppression. Did you catch that in verse 2 and 3? He's like, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, he's not suggesting that we should all die because it's better to be dead than to be oppressed. That's what he's saying. He's, he's using this to speak in a way that intensifies and shows the pain of oppression that's been neglected. So where do we go from here as we read this, as we hear this of the oppressed being neglected? Where do we go from here? Well, where we shouldn't go first is maybe where a lot of people go, and that is placing their hope in the government. Why shouldn't we place our hope in our government? Because as Solomon says, in our government is neglect. So often when some kind of oppression is made public, when some kind of injustice is made public, there's all kinds of talk of, well, what do we do now? What is our solution to this horrible injustice, to this oppression? And people want government reform. People want new leaders. People want new policies. People want new organized groups. And while some of that may help, at the end of the day, it is not our solution. Now, are there blessings in our government? Yes. I believe, especially here in America, there are many blessings in our government. Should the Christian be involved in political matters? That's a loaded question. Okay, there's a lot of debate there. But I believe, yes, to an extent, Christians should. The Bible says we ought to seek the welfare of the city. As Christians, I think we do have some responsibility of putting in place policies that are godly. For God's ways are a blessing to people. Should the Christian seek justice? And seek relief for the oppressed. Yes, the Bible speaks very much about this. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Psalm 82.3, Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed. Isaiah 1.17, Seek justice. Correct oppression. James 1.27, Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We see all throughout Scripture that Christians should be actively and regularly involved in seeking justice and relief for the oppressed. So first, let's start there. Do you care for the oppressed? Do you care for the oppressed? Do you care for the broken? When you see others being wrongly treated, do you step in? Or when you see someone being wrongly treated, do you look away and walk away? When you see others broken and in need of aid, do you step in and help? It takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice of your time. It may take sacrifice of your money. It takes sacrifice of your energy. But Christian, we ought to be the ones leading the way in helping the oppressed, in helping the broken. 
We have the love of Christ in us, do we not? So let us not neglect those who are in need. But let us show the love of Christ to all. Even if it comes as an inconvenience to us. So Christian, I ask you, are you active in this? Are you active in loving and helping the oppressed and the broken? Or do you neglect? Now, while there are many parts of Scripture, as I've already read, that speak of the importance and the value of merciful help and care for the broken, the book of Ecclesiastes is not contradicting this, but it is stressing a different point. That in the end, we live in a broken world, and our hope must not rest in the aid of today. We may help those who are oppressed, and we should, but in the end, more will be oppressed, and injustice will continue to happen. We may provide aid for the broken and the hurting, but that aid does not solve the root issue of their ultimate problem. The root issue is sin. And their ultimate problem, if they're not in Christ, is that they are at war with God. And so physical and practical aid, it's good, but it's merely a band-aid. That is not true hope. So where is our hope? Our hope must be in Jesus Christ. Christian, it is, it is our great obligation to share the hope of Christ to this broken world. For this hope in Jesus Christ, it is an eternal hope, is it not? The things in this world are passing. The oppression, the injustice, the pain, it is passing. And I don't want to make little of the pain and the suffering of this world. Because they're not little. But we must have an eternal perspective of life. If you are not a Christian... The oppression of this world, the, the neglect of your suffering, any trial you may experience, that is not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you are at war with God. And his wrath is awaiting you for all of eternity. But in Christ there is salvation. And in Christ is the solution to your sin problem. And if you are a Christian, then you can say with Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That he said he shouldn't even be on the same scales. That it's not even worth comparing. Now, are the sufferings of this world heavy? Yes. Very heavy. And it weighs those scales down. Very far down. But when you put it side by side with the eternal glory that we have with God, he said it's not even worth comparing. It's like that suffering that did weigh far down. It's like it just flies up in the air, off the scales. It's weightless compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. So this hope in Jesus Christ is an eternal hope. I mean, not only is it just an eternal hope, but this hope in Jesus Christ is a hope for here and now. We can't forget that. While government may neglect the oppressed, Christ never neglects his people. Even today. Even in times in which it may feel like God has abandoned us, we can know with certainty that he has not abandoned us. How do we know this? Paul says he is sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. 
Jesus says that the Father gives good gifts to his children. God says in Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God has not neglected his people. It's not that God said, hey, good luck here on earth. I'm going to leave for a little bit, but don't worry. Things are going to be better once you get to heaven. You can have hope in that, but for now, you're on your own. No. God says life will be difficult on earth, yes, but he says, I am with you always. And I love you always. And I have what's best for you always. So you see, Christ changes everything. There may be neglect in this world. But in Christ, he is always with us. And he always loves us. And so we have hope in him. Now I'm continuing on to talk about the hopelessness found in government. We see next that... Not just the problem with neglect, but the problem with pride. And now we jump to verse 13 through 16. The problem with pride. And Solomon here describes this old foolish king who is stubborn and he does not take advice and he's lost favor with the people. And this old king is eventually replaced with a young wise king. And while this young wise king had become popular amongst the people, he too eventually lost favor with the people. So a couple things I want to notice here about both these kings. First thing I want us to notice is that our hope must not be found in our government officials. Our hope must not be found in our government officials. Now, most of you have never voted for a government official before, as most of you are not of age to do that. But one day you will. At least you'll have that freedom, Lord willing. By that time, you'll still have that freedom. And you should take that freedom. And you should take the responsibility seriously. And I think it's important for Christians to do their part in electing someone who you believe will lead our country in a way that honors Christ and that demonstrates his character. So yes. That being said, our hope, our hope must not be in any man or woman. Shall she be elected president? Every four years when the presidential election comes about, everyone gets all riled up. About this person or that person being our hope. In fact, that was one of the slogans of our former president, Barack Obama. You may remember. I don't even know if any of you were alive. Were you alive? I don't know. You were? Do you remember this? Okay, good. Do you remember? Like, it was his face. And underneath his face, it said hope. Right? Like, as, as if, like, he's our hope. And people place their hope in this person or that person or the changes that they will make. And their hope is in these things or in these people. Solomon describes a scenario in which there was a king that at some point they thought would be good. But then they wanted a younger, wiser king that they thought would be better. Only to find that he too was sought to be replaced by the people. And it's the cycle of hoping that someone will be able to be our savior, to rescue us, to make everything better. But in the end, they too will prove that the solution is not found in them. Do not place your hope in man. Do not place your hope in a government official or a policy or a program or a political party or anything else. Do not place our hope in the government. And the second thing I want to notice is that popularity is fleeting. 
and pride is self-destructive. Popularity is fleeting and pride is self-destructive. This is what I really want to look at the two kings. We see the fleeting popularity of the young king. Let's look at him first in verse 16. So there was no end of all the people of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. At first people liked him, but then as time passes, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Man has such a great desire to be liked and to be accepted by others. And some will go at great lengths to become popular, to be liked. And they may even be willing to sin. They may even be willing to say things, to do things that are sinful. The trade-off is you get popularity. What are you willing to do to be popular? What are you willing to do to be liked by others? To be liked by your friends? To be liked by those who aren't your friends that you wish they were? To be liked by your parents? Even though they do like you and they love you. Some of you. (laughs) I'm kidding. What are you willing to do? Do you crave the acceptance of others? Are you willing to do just about anything so that others will like you? Well, Solomon says popularity is fleeting. He's saying it's all vanity. And you could sacrifice so much and you could give so much of your life just so that others will like you. And what he's saying is, that's fleeting. And then we see the self-destructive pride of the old king. In verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He no longer knew how to take advice because of his pride. In his pride, he would not listen to others. He did not take counsel from others any longer. He believed his ways were the best ways, period. The Bible says that the fool does not receive criticism, that the fool does not seek counsel from others. This pride is self-destructive. Pride comes before the fall. But do not be like the old king. Do not be consumed with pride and you shut out the advice and the counsel of others. You know where a lot of youth shut out advice and counsel? From their parents. I see that so much. In all years of youth ministry, so much just don't want to hear what their parents have to say. And it's sad to see. Because your parents are are fountains of wisdom. And you may not believe that. But they have so much wisdom and good advice and counsel, godly advice they can give you. And yet they're often neglected. Where do you seek your advice? Maybe you're like the king and you don't seek advice. Maybe you're so consumed with pride that you believe you don't need advice from anyone. That you got this on your own. That's young man syndrome. Oh, Josiah, you know young man syndrome. I'm not going to go there right now. Maybe we'll go there in discussion group. Maybe you seek advice, but you seek it in the wrong places. You seek, you search the internet for, for relationship advice. You seek advice for, for how to handle a certain situation you're dealing with, but, but the advice you receive maybe is worldly advice. It's not godly advice. I encourage you, have humility. Seek out advice and counsel and wisdom. But seek it in those who will give you godly, biblical advice. 
Sometimes we seek out the advice where we know we're going to hear what we want to hear, even though we know it's not the advice that we should hear. So we think like, oh, maybe I'll go to my guy Jason, ask him for some advice. But I know he's going to—he's going to just—he's going to talk Bible. That's what Jason does. So I'm not going to go to him. I'm going to go to—I'm not going to say who. Someone else instead, right? Don't be like the foolish old king who no longer knew how to take advice. But in humility, seek out, and in humility, receive advice. Now, where does Christ come into the picture in this? I want to present two ways in which Christ comes into this picture. First is that no politician can save us from our problems, but Christ can. And sure, we will hear time and time again that someone has a solution to our problems. But the reality is our problem is sin. And the only solution to sin is Christ. And as long as we keep trying to find solutions outside of Christ, the problems will just keep sprouting up. But Christ came and he conquered sin and he defeated our greatest problem. And so it is Christ we must look to as our hope. And is saying no to sin. And is saying yes to Christ. Christ is our solution. Secondly, what I want to say here is that the acceptance of man is fleeting. But the acceptance of Christ is eternal. You know, we so desperately want the acceptance of man. We want the approval of man. But in the end, Solomon says it's fleeting. So Christian, rest in your acceptance of Christ. First off, it's far greater to be accepted by the eternal, perfect sin of God than it is to be accepted by some mortal sinner. Like, what a loser. Like, who cares what they think? You've been accepted by Christ. Like, what is better than that? Is their acceptance really more important than Christ? Not only that, but Christ's acceptance is eternal. It's unchanging. We will fall. We will fail. We will let him down. But his acceptance of us, Christian, will never change. It's eternal. So let our hope not be in the acceptance of man, which is fleeting. Let our hope be in the eternal acceptance of Christ. All right, so first we see the hopelessness found in government. We need to move on. The hopelessness found in work. Verses 4 through 12. First, we see the problem with jealousy. You could say envy. Either way, problem with jealousy or envy. I think maybe you guys use the word jealousy more. Both, I think, are true to the text. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor or jealousy of his neighbor. Solomon says he sees people working hard, but it's all because of jealousy of others. And he says it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. And the idea is is this rivalry between people in order to be the best, in order to have the best, that you strive more than anything to be on top. You strive more than anything to be the best. Is competition and rivalry bad? No. It's the most sinful thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, not necessarily. You're right, Javen. It's not necessarily competition rivalry is bad. There are times and there are ways in which it's good to compete. It's good to stretch your skills, to use what God has given you to its greatest degree. Yes. 
In some ways, competition and rivalry can bring out the best in people. But the problem here that Solomon notices about this rivalry is the heart of the person. It is envy. It is the jealousy. That they work hard at their jobs simply to be better than their neighbor. Maybe that doesn't sound bad to you. They work hard not to glorify God. They work hard not to be good stewards of God's gift, but instead to be the best, to have the best. See, there is selfish and prideful desire rooted underneath. Competition itself, it's not sinful, but the desire to be first and the willingness to do anything, even sin, in order to gain, that is when it becomes sinful. Maybe it's hard for you to relate. Let me ask you this way. I want you to think about this your own life. Does it bother you when others succeed? When you think of someone where they do succeed, you've seen them succeed and it's bothered you. When other, does it bother you when others have what you want? When you see others being blessed by the Lord, whether it's their status and position or whether it's material goods, Does it bother you? Are you upset? Does it drive you to rivalry? Or maybe when you hear something bad happen to someone else, they didn't get first. They didn't do well. Something didn't work out for them. It makes you a little happy inside. You want to smile, but you don't want anyone to see you smile. You kind of enjoy the fall of someone else because of the rivalry you have with them. Do you think and pursue and hope for only what makes you prosper and only what is best for you? And you say, well, yeah, like, like what's wrong with that? What's wrong with, with seeking what's best for me? Shouldn't I want to take care of myself and do what's best for me? The Bible says to put others ahead of yourself. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry. There it is right there. Instant, huh? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Do you wish and seek the best for others? Do you put others before yourself? Or in your rivalry, do you seek only for your best? What did Christ do? Let's continue. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ in humility thought of us to the point of death. That Christ added humanity to himself and he died for sinners like you and me. And if you are in Christ, you ought to have, as he says here, the same mind of Christ. 
You ought to come to serve, not to be served. You ought to, in humility, sacrifice for the sake and the good of others. Many people sacrifice for their own good. Oh, I put all this time in to this practice or into this study or into this work or into this or that or to make myself look nice or whatever. I put all this time in for my own gain and I sacrifice and I'm willing to sacrifice all of this for my gain. But will you sacrifice for the gain of others? Maybe evaluate how much time and energy and money and everything that you put in for sacrifice for your own gain. And how much of your time, energy, and money, all of that do you sacrifice for the sake of others and their gain? Now, on the flip side, Solomon, he also noticed people being so upset at this, at this rat race, right? At this working and, and, and envy, jealousy, all this. So you see that some people are so upset at it, they just fold their hands and they stop working. And they're like, forget about it. This is lame. I'm just not going to work. And that's not better. In fact, Solomon calls this person a fool. Laziness is not the answer to rivalry and jealousy, okay? So some of you guys here are like, good, I'll just not do anything. My mama will feed me dino nuggets my whole life. <laughs> no. So how should we view work? Well, we ought to view it as a gift from God. We ought to work hard unto the Lord. We ought to think of others ahead of ourselves. There are all ways in which we ought to, to view work. But really what it comes down to is this. Understanding that hope is not found in work and in being jealous of what others have. Hope is found in Christ. Are you content in Christ? Are you content in what God has given you? Even if it means you're not number one. Even if it means others have a higher position or status. Others have more riches. Others have more material items. Others have more friends or more this or that. Whatever it is. Are you content with God's lot for your life? Whatever that may be. Or do you constantly find yourself looking at what others have and looking at what you don't have? And as a result, you're discontent and jealous. If you are in Christ, you possess all riches in Him. Are you content in Him? Are you content in His riches? Lastly, and this is, he's continuing this thought now. We see the problem with greed. Verses 7 through 12. The problem with greed. And here we see another popular passage. Maybe it sounded familiar to you. But one I think we need to keep in its context. That in regards to work, that's his context, he is warning of working so hard that you push everyone away. And sadly, we see this true so often. You see those who are workaholics, and they push their family and their friends away. And they may say, well, I work hard for my family. And yet they spend no time with their family. And eventually their family is gone. While they spent all their time working away. And it's because of their greed, Solomon is saying, and their desire for more and more, that they're now left alone. And it's true, some are alone because of their greed. But I do want to say that's not the case for everyone. I, I want to say this, that some people, for instance, will remain single for a long time. And it's not because of their greed. It may just be God's providence and his perfect sovereign plan for their life. 
someone, maybe their, their, their spouse may die. We're not to point at them and say, oh, well, it's because you were greedy that, that you're alone now. No, what, what I don't want is for you to make a universal claim that if someone's lonely, it's because they're greedy, okay? But in this context, Solomon is saying that those who are greedy and they work so hard that in the end they are left to enjoy their riches alone. Really the point, I think, is for us to see that relationships are a gift from God. That's what the gift is. Not what you're greedy for and what you want. I uh, See, our, our greed forfeits that gift of relationship, is what he's saying. But we need one another. We are created to be with one another. We are made in the image of God. And God is a relational God. He's a Trinitarian God. While he's one God, he's always been three persons. Since before time began, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed together in perfect harmony and unity. And he's, he has relationship with his people. He, he's not a God who keeps himself distant from his people. Although he is a holy God, right? But he's also a God who is near and who is active in our affairs. See, the, the deist believes that, that God's creator. Yes, and then, but what God did was he, he wound up history like a clock. Like, and he wound it up and he just let it go. And he stepped away until time runs out, until the clock runs out. That's not how God works. He's not just step away from history. He is a relational God. He's active and he cares. And he has a relationship with us. And we are made in the image of God. And we are made to have relationships with one another. We are made to love others and to be loved by others, not to be alone. I think this has become more and more difficult in our individualistic society. So I do want to take some time to talk about that. Because the American philosophy is independence. It is pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is, I don't need no man, says the girl. To be an individual is, is celebrated. It's, it's praised if you're an individual, right? And I think even since 2020, all the, shuts, the shutdowns, the, the distant learning, the remote work, all this just pushed even more so into this individual lifestyle. The life is better and it's more convenient. On our own. That church is easier to watch from home than it is to go. The life is better alone. In fact, even the church, right? We, we speak so much about having a, a personal quiet time. And th- this idea of this quiet time, right? This personal quiet time, it's not even found in Scripture. Th- th- there can be Practices that we apply, maybe like, like we see that Jesus goes away and prays in quiet, sure. But, but the idea of this personal quiet time, it, it, it was created by the Puritans. And it fits right in to our individual, individualistic society that my walk is between me and God. And it's my business. And all I need is me. Now, obviously, I do find value in a private quiet time, right? At our camps, we have a you and God time. I think it's very valuable. But my point is that being a lone ranger here on your walk is not what is best for us. And it's not how we were created to act. Believers need one another. And we are made to be part of the body and to be active with the body together. And so what ways do we need one another? Solomon outlines three. First, we need to pick each other up. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. We pick each other up. 
physically and spiritually, right? Like physically he's speaking here, that we ought to be there for one another. When someone's in physical need, we ought to care for each other in that way. We ought to pick them up when they fall. But I think there's a spiritual sense to this as well. That we ought to pick each other up spiritually when we fall spiritually. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we are in spiritual warfare. We need one another. You know, I learned this the first time when I was paintballing. The, 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 I mean, the first time I went paintballing. First thing I thought was, Rambo, baby! I want to light everyone up. Well, I got lit up. I run out the... I just get like shot like crazy. I'm out instantly. And the guys I was paintballing were like, no, we got to be together. That's what he said. Actually, it was Dave Robinson, if anyone knows him. And he's like, we got to go and, and like we cover for each other. We stick together. And when you want to go up to the next bunker, I pop out and I cover. And then you go there and then I, I come follow. So you pop out and, we cover, and we're working together. And oh, things are so much better. In our spiritual warfare, we, we need... I'm going Josiah. Remember the battle buddies, Josiah? Man, we got to talk about that tonight discussion. We got a lot to talk about, huh? The battle, we need battle buddies. We, we need others to help us fight in our spiritual battles. And sometimes we fall and we need someone close to be able to pick us up and direct our gaze back on our Savior. See, left alone, we, we may fall. And he says, there's no one to pick us up. And we fall maybe into deep depression or sorrow and guilt of our own sin. Left alone, we may fall into further and further sin. We need one another to remind us of the forgiveness of Christ. To pick us up and to direct us back on the path of his righteousness. Secondly, he says to keep each other warm. To keep each other warm. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And you're like, with a blanket. That's not what he's saying. Okay? <laughs> and of course, there's physical truth to this, such as like keep each other warm at night. Like imagine like they're sleeping like outside. They're traveling. It's cold outside. But there's a spiritual emphasis here that we need comfort. We need warmth in our deepest troubles, in our coldest seasons. When we push everyone away, when we believe all we need is ourselves, we have no one to keep us warm in the cold seasons of life. But there's great comfort in the body of Christ. No, we are family together, and we will keep each other warm through the toughest of storms. When your brother or sister in Christ is going through a storm, be of warm comfort to them. Be near them. Be with them. And thirdly, lastly, to protect one another in danger. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, there's the physical truth to this, but there's spiritual implications as well. That we ought to look out for each other's spiritual dangers. When we are alone, sometimes it's hard to see the spiritual dangers that we're in. You know, the, the thing with spiritual blindness is that you are spiritually blind to your blindness. Otherwise, you wouldn't be blind to it, right? So we need one another to protect us from the danger. And to say, hey, brother, you are living in sin and you are on a dangerous path. Let me direct you to Christ. We need exhortation from one another. We need encouragement. We need prayers. We need others to help direct our sights onto Christ. And it is, a, it is dangerous to fight a spiritual war alone. We need one another. And so I challenge you guys. I challenge you to make relationships that are godly. Make relationships that are deep 
Make relationships that are spiritually edifying. When you go into discussion groups in a little bit, be real and be vulnerable and bear each other's burdens and point each other to Christ. When you talk and you fellowship after TYG, care for each other's spiritual burdens and dangers. When you're at home and you're talking on Discord, make it profitable. Make it edifying. When you hang out with each other, make it uplifting and encouraging to each other's spiritual walk. Be discipled by someone who is wiser in the faith. Do not live alone in your spiritual walk. But be together as a body in Christ. Now remember it's a context. Solomon's point is that when we place our hope in work, remember this is still in the context of work. He's saying when we place our hope in work, and, and we, we, then we become consumed by greed. And when we do that, is when we push everyone away. That's what he's saying. Now, while relationships in this life is very important, and they are a blessing to us, the most important relationship is not horizontal, it's vertical. It is valuable and it's important to have good friendships here on earth, but the most important relationship is your relationship with God. If you are not a Christian, your relationship with God that you have right now is a hostile relationship and you are at enmity with Him. And this must be your highest priority. More than anything else in life, you need to be made right with God. And to be made right with God is not through your own doing. But it's only through His grace that you can be made right. And so if you are not a Christian, I urge you to stop everything you are doing. I urge you not to waste another day of your life. And I urge you to come to God with your sins and your failures and believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins that he would forgive you of your sins. You can pursue all these other things in life. You can be driven by greed. You can gain the whole world. But what does it truly profit you if you lose your soul? Christ is what you need. Solomon shows us the hopelessness in life. And specifically tonight we see in government and in work. And people will search for hope hope their whole lives. And oftentimes they'll search here. They'll search for their hope in government. They'll search for their hope in work. But in the end they will not find it. For all is vanity. Does that mean that we have no hope in this world? No. No. There is hope to be found in a hopeless world. That hope is found in Jesus Christ. And for some of you, you do not know this hope. And you continue to search for hope in the things of this world. And maybe it's in man and in government. Maybe it's in work and the things you gain from work. Maybe you're searching for hope in something else. Whatever it is, if it is not Christ, you will not find it. But there is hope found in Jesus Christ. There's hope for today. There's hope for all of eternity. And for those in Christ, I encourage you, Christian, to fix your eyes and set your hope firmly on Christ. We may be tempted to set our hope on the things of this world. We hope that man will solve our problems. We hope that work and money and status will will bring us meaning and joy and solutions to our problems. But I remind you that Christ is 
our only hope. So Christian, I ask you, what, what are the things of this world that may distract you? What are the things of this world that may deceive you? What are the things of this world that may tempt you to place your hope in it instead of Christ? Fixate your eyes on him who is our hope. Remember the promises and the truths of God that we are found in his word and find hope in a hopeless world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our living hope. God, that the things of this world, we may place our hope in it, but Lord, they will fail us. It is vanity. It is striving after the wind. But God, there is true hope found in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would go to your throne and behold your glory and worship you and fixate our eyes on you and that our hope would rest solely in you. Lord, would you continue to work in our hearts as we discuss these things? May your spirit be working for our edification, for our growth, and ultimately for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.